General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering blood red skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk to Andy Chambers, and we're going to discuss a little bit about campaigns and a lot about other things that we care about. But first, we want to go through our usual evening of information. Brett, how are you doing tonight since you're on to discuss the Intel updates in the hangar? I'm doing good. Awesome. So there's been a few things that have uh, popped out there in the Intel update world. Uh, the first one, obviously, is the virtual gathering of eagles. Uh, sounds like we are going to get together via Discord, tabletop sim, uh, maybe some Google Meet and Zoom, and uh, host a little bit of a gaming get-together on the 6th of June, which is Saturday, in addition to it being D-Day. Uh, and we will start that about 10 o'clock Eastern, somewhere between 9 to 10 o'clock Eastern. Uh, the schedule is not out yet, but if you want to get an idea of what's going on, you can head over to leadpursuit.net. There's a tab up in the uh, top of the navigation bar for Gathering of Eagles. Click on that, and you can sign up, and we'll put you on the list. Uh, once again, there's no complex registration. It's free. Uh, the questions it asks are just kind of, hey, what kind of things do you want to pay attention to? Uh, hey, you're there for competitive gaming. I'm there to hear Doug pontificate about rules, whatever. So that information's on there. Please sign up. Uh, don't feel obligated that if you signed up, you have to show up. We just want to know who's interested. Uh, and that way we have a list of people that we can put out uh, some smaller uh, invites to for some very specific cool things that'll be going on during that time frame. So you can either show up and uh, get the public link to everything, or you can register early, get the private link, and maybe get the invite to the party suite, right? The con party suite. We're doing that right, Brett? Wait, that's not going to work virtually, is it? Damn it. <laughs> it's a BYOB. Okay, so everyone bring, the, bring, the, bring your own uh, booze and you can hang out with us in the party suite. All right, so uh, while we're talking about that, the other week we had the team from Fights On. Uh, they are uh, really supportive of uh, our work with Blood Red Skies and our podcast. Uh, they would like to extend a discount code if you want to order some terrain. They've got some pretty cool markers out there as well. If you want to go pick up any of that, uh, when you check out, just use the discount code LAGPURSUIT, L-A-G, instead of LEAD. If you're, if you're not a fighter guy and you don't get the joke, that's all right. We used to always talk about people who, uh, who weren't hacking it. They were, quote, stuck in LAG, so they weren't pulling LEAD. They were, they were behind the bandit. Uh, but that's fine. So use lag pursuit as your code uh, and get an added discount on there. Now, new things we've tried. Well, I had a big box of acrylic roll across my desk the other day. Did you see the photos of that, Brett? Yes. <laughs> I want to get those on the table. Those are good. Yeah. So uh, it was, it's been great. Litco has done a great job with some of the prototyping we did uh, earlier, uh, kind of at the end of 2019. Well, we've turned all that uh, from the prototype phase into the ready-to-commercially-sell phase. Uh, and, of course, Litco's hooked us up. Let us have uh, a couple months of exclusivity. Um, if you want to buy those uh, acrylic tokens for Airstrike or the dials, we have them on our website. How do you find our web store? It's, it's, it's really tough, guys. You go to leadpursuit.net, and there's a, there's a button that says store. Uh, but right now, we've got uh, the dials and the tokens up there. There are some other cool acrylic things coming uh, from Litco. They... 
they have done a really good job working with us on some neat Blood Red Sky specific stuff. So you'll see that coming up in the next uh, couple weeks. Uh, and you can order it online or you can wait a couple months. And if you want to wait till the fall, you probably can order uh, via Amazon uh, straight from Litco and, and do some things like that. But uh, once again, we'd, we'd love to get those out into gamers' hands early. Uh, and we've got a discount already on the website, so it's not uh, full retail price if you order from us. Um, the, the one thing I will say is uh, we're going to have plenty of copies as well as copies when we go to the... Uh, the in-person gathering of Eagles. Uh, so if you want to wait and buy them there, uh, that's not a problem either. And it's weird. We might even have a discount during the virtual game. Hmm, strange. <laughs> well, what other new kit have you seen out there, uh, Brett? Anything interesting, uh, mats or, or game kit-wise? Well, uh, I just got my first box of BF uh, BF109Gs. And, oh, uh, nice. Took them out. Nice. Yeah, looking real good. Uh, all in Warlord resin. That'll so be part of what those? I paint up. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do a little couple of paint classes, some uh, some cool kind of things. Yeah, between Chris and I, I think we're going to go from soup to nuts. Uh, yeah, so Chris, Chris, that guy that didn't join us tonight. Why did Chris not join us? Because he's putting together his basement. Now, Now his excuse, for, for all the listeners, his excuse was good. He's like, I want it to look nice when we're streaming a painting video for the virtual gathering of eagles. Uh, I think we all know he was getting it done so that his wife would stop yelling at him. <laughs> so don't try to blame the Blood Red Skies community for you having to work on your home improvement projects. But now he couldn't be with us. He was finishing that up. Um, but those classes are going to be fun. I, th I think people are going to learn a lot. Uh, I know I'll learn a lot. I'll probably be stuck doing something else on the other end of the table, uh, coordinating the virtual con at that time. But uh, it should be pretty neat uh, to have you up here uh, doing some of that painting. Yeah, you provide the beer. I'll do the painting. Yeah, that's easy. I can do that. <laughs> Strange. I have plenty of beer in the fridge already. Already stockpiling it. That the toilet paper. All right. What else you've been working on? I think the one of the B29s you were getting uh, some more work done on. Oh yeah, that's right. I um, recently started another Korea B29. This one's raising hell, and uh, they're actually pretty quick. I mean, I know it's a big model, and maybe that's intimidating for folks. But if you want to paint a big model, especially these B29s, they paint up pretty quick. I mean, because it's not a whole lot of colors. There's some little details and stuff, but it's nothing too crazy. So uh, my intent was to crank that out and then start working on the, those um, 109Gs, get them all prepped up for the, the painting tutorial. So uh, anyway, that's a recent. I just finished some DO17s, some Battle of Britain Arab DO17s. Right, right. Saw and then, those. Yeah, and then rolled right into this B29. So I may put that off the B29. I may put off to the side and get start started on these um, these 109s and then come back to it. But those are always fun. I really, I, I, I've done, this will be the third one. I really like these B29s. They're fun to paint. And they're a nice palette cleanser. To, we need to talk about that the, in our next episode. Spend some time talking about painting something that big and the level of detail. Because I think people also, uh, I know myself, I'd be a little concerned because I what I like about 1-200 scale is it's small. And uh, there's not this high level of detail. I think there might be a little fear that as the aircraft uh, get dramatically bigger, uh, sometimes the uh, the lack of skill on my part <laughs> becomes a little bit more evident. But we'll talk about that in another week because right now everyone is thinking, I've listened to you idiots talk for 7 minutes and 15 seconds. Why do I have to listen to you anymore? I would like to hear you talk to Andy. So without any further ado, we're going to take it over and talk to Andy.
Tonight, we're back on the reservation. We've been wandering afar, talking to people that aren't necessarily related to Blood Red Skies. We've even been probably dirty people and played other people's games as well during this time of, of solo gaming and social distancing. But tonight, we're back with the man himself, Andy Chambers. Andy, how are you doing tonight? I'm very well, thank you. As well as can be expected under the circumstances, anyway. Absolutely. And we've also got Brett on to talk a little bit of things that he's been doing with campaigning. Brett, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Awesome. Good to have uh, both of you on. Uh, we would have Chris on, but apparently he put a priority to home renovations instead of the podcast. I personally am hurt. I feel like it's an attack and an affront upon my podcast hood or something like that. Whatever. We'll go on without him and, uh, and he can always jo join in and throw spears at the things we've said later. So let's jump right into the big interview topic. We've spent a lot of time playing one-off Blood Red Skies games. And, you know, quite frankly, that's how I've really enjoyed the game. Just a pickup game, whatever aircraft, a scenario, do something neat. Well, Andy, you released a series of campaign rules out on the Ready Room uh, a while back. And we've started playing with those. How did those, those campaign rules come to be? Well... Going back in the day, one of the one of the fondest memories I have of my time at Games Workshop, which was a long time, was uh, when we ran Blood Bowl and Necromunda campaigns, uh, because it just takes on a whole life of its own at that point, and you, you get a lot of personal investment into your forces and your little guys and people advancing and stuff like that. And I really wanted to create a parallel for that with Blood Red Skies, so that you could take a, a squadron of dudes and start out with you know a few rookies and a few veterans and see how they got on so you know you'll lose some guys some guys will go up and uh, but hopefully overall your squadron will improve over a course of a campaign so it's not a really formal ah it's a ladder or you know it's a net style campaign it's uh, it's something that's mainly about progression because again when i sort of read first hand accounts of uh, of the second world war and that's very much what it's about you you get even you know what became the greatest aces, they all started somewhere. You know, they were all inexperienced guys at some point and they learned from other veterans and gradually their skills click into place. And I thought that'd be a lot of fun to actually see that happening over the course of several games when you're playing Blood Red Skies. And that was really the, the, the idea behind it more than anything else. Yeah, I think it's pretty funny going back to even uh, George Beerling's uh, early history and being a a pilot who didn't fit into the squadron well in his first tour and nearly having a midair with another pilot during, uh, during training. And you, you laugh when you think of that individual going on being put in a different situation, different theater. And now he is literally the ace of the base, uh, and is racking up, uh, all the kills. It's, it's an interesting, uh, evolution to see in some of the pilots. Uh, Brett, I know uh, you probably uh, don't feel the same way about uh, pilots surviving because it seems like you've been on the uh, on the downside of the campaigns that that you've been running. Uh, yeah, the interesting thing about our campaign, we started, you know, uh, right around Battle of Britain. We've played six games so far. Initially, our games were one game was a month, and it's surprisingly I'm playing Luftwaffe, and it's surprisingly kind of following history. I'm just getting attrited the whole time and getting close to being done with flying over the channel. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ceasing to be fun because you're replacing all of your people that you really liked and, and had, had an emotional bond with with a, a bunch of rookies that are showing up as pilot skill too, right? <laughs> yeah, Andy said, you know, personal investment in the in, in, in the game, and that's definitely how we feel about it. Uh, me and Steve, uh, Steve Toth, he's my partner in crime in this venture, and 
you know, it's funny. Uh, you make decisions in the game that you wouldn't in a one-off game because you're like, oh man, I can't afford to lose this guy or whatever. You're thinking about, you know, what, ramifications for future games. Those are things like that. If, if nothing else, those basic decisions are something that's totally new to just your regular, you know, role for a mission and play yeah, a one-off yeah. game. Yeah, taking risks with your guys suddenly takes on a whole new aspect when you're, you're running in a campaign. And like, do you go in for that last dodgy shot that maybe would win the game? Or if it doesn't work out, end up with your guy almost certainly getting shot down? And the answer is, you probably don't. Yeah, and sometimes it's just a matter of just the odds. Uh, I had a scenario, one of our early games, I, I call it my Black Thursday, where three of my guys uh, didn't survive. they Their aircraft exploded and they didn't escape, so all three of them were killed in action, which, as you know, in the in the campaign stuff, using the shoot-down table and stuff, you, you have to really mess up your die rolls to make that happen, but to make it happen three times in a row, I, I lost three guys yeah, in one that, mission. That's, that's pretty unlucky. That is pretty unlucky, it has to be said. Because when I wrote the, the sort of like, what happens when you get shot down, again, that was very much informed by reading accounts and you... Yes, some guys get get killed in their planes and things like that. Um, but you know, a lot manage to bail out. Some don't survive bailing out. Some bail out and get captured. Some bail out and don't get captured, and all this sort of stuff. And I, I tried to build all those different potential outcomes, along with um, the trying to limp back to base, even though you you know your squadron's taken a lot of damage and so forth, and and do the crash landing thing as well. Uh, very inspired by Pierre Klosterman on that front. So I, I try to get a, a real sort of like suite of different outcomes. So if you keep ending up with your guys literally getting exploded on contact, you're, you're definitely being unlucky with those tables there, I'm afraid. Yeah, there, there's a, you mentioned those tables and those mechanics, and we've sort of mishmashed a bunch of different rule sets and have even you know, after about five games, even thrown in some more stuff from some other systems, but the kind of the constant thing that remains really uh, a really critical part of the mechanic we use is your your calendar from your um, campaign rule set that's in the ready room files. That calendar that yeah, I think it's like four four month blocks for each theater and each faction. That's been a real integral part of our planning method and what we're doing. And then that bailout or what is it? The shoot down table, the bailout table and the injury table. Those, those are super important for what we're doing. And we love that mechanic, the way it works. Well, I think the interesting thing is when you start playing campaigns, it, it does force you to change your play style in some ways that maybe you haven't explored in one-off games. Cause where I tend to be a person who plays the board edge and, and it drives Brett and Chris both nuts when I will willingly fly off the board edge. Uh, but I, I play with the, the board edge being interactive based on the scenario I have uh, all of a sudden in campaigns, that board edge is a heck of a lot more important because it might be smarter to just go, you know, I'm going to lose this individual battle by victory points, but I'm going to jump off the board edge and save this pilot skill four guy who's about to get ganged up on by all the remaining pilot skill threes. Uh, and things like that, which which I think makes for kind of an, an interesting flair to the game, which is always one of my arguments about why we don't want to keep expanding the map sizes, because you, you make it bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden you don't have the ability of your pilot to just uh, decide to run from the fight and get away. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting outcome. It, it's one of the nice things, actually, uh, casting back to another game. I did Battlefleet Gothic when I was at Games Workshop. Because um, for that, we, we built into the victory point rules uh, a lot of difference between getting a ship crippled and lost 
basically. With the idea being that, you know, if a ship is in trouble, you try and get out of dodge. You know, you don't use it as a as a bomb to try and throw into the middle of the enemy fleet in the hopes that it'll blow up, because it's going to cost you a lot of victory points if you lose the ship. So, and that actually has, has promoted some, some good play on that front, even without it being a campaign setting, that um, people will try and save their ships if they get into trouble, rather than uh, just abandoning them to the fates as soon as they get damaged. You know, Andy, I think playing some campaigns is even... Uh, it would probably be informative for folks who have any complaints about the boom chip mechanic because playing in a campaign, it's pretty clear. There are times when you're hoping you get boomed out and can fly home without t- suffering more losses. And maybe that's not real clear for folks who are just playing one-off games and find you know or have an expectation that the game only ends after every single aircraft is shot down. I, I think not only does that, you know, not really accurate for what how things really work but then you start to feel it the reality of that when you're just playing a campaign because the outcome's going to spill over to your next game yeah that there was kind of that thinking behind it as well i I didn't want people fighting to the last aircraft every time and and gamers being gamers that's of course what they'll do wait wait this isn't 40k with airplanes i don't (laughs) fight to the last model on the table sorry i couldn't pass up that dig (laughs) yeah yeah well you know you 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 learn from your past don't you or at least you try to (laughs) try to you you try to encourage good habits you know which is again where the battlefleet gothic came from was like you know don't don't play to the death every time because that's it lacks verisimilitude, my favourite word at the moment, lacks truthiness. Um, whereas actually actively working to try and save your guys, that has got an element of truth to it. And I, th- I think makes people play a bit more honestly, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting you know, points about the game, and, and it comes into what I'm trying to explain parts of the of why boom chits are so important to people and why you can quote-unquote break a squadron and, and how that comes out really in history is a lot of people unfortunately only read about the shoot downs and they don't read about the 30 40 planes all mixing it up and then everybody at about the same time going okay we've had enough (laughs) and one side usually deciding to leave but it wasn't it wasn't like an ancient infantry battle you didn't just massacre the other side because they decided to leave and you ran over them with your elephants Um, both sides would break it off and generally there was a little bit of all right we're pretty beat up they're really beat up we're just going to let them disengage. Yeah, it, it is a truth. And, and I've talked about this before about playing uh, World War Two online and that fact that the, the sky can go from being full of enemy planes to just being empty in a moment. It's not that easy to actually stay on the tails and of multiple enemy aircraft when they decide to get the hell out of Dodge. They just dive away and they're gone, you know. And to a certain extent, chasing after them, you're putting yourself at a big risk if you do that. Because uh, you never know when somebody else is going to be in a position to bounce you. So there, there is definitely a point when <laughs> the sides decide like, that's enough of that and disappear off. And you don't hang around at that point because then you're a guy on your own and that just means you're a victim. Hey, Andy, as we're playing along, one of the things that we've noticed, of course, the games are exciting in themselves, but then sometimes what the outcome, you know, the, the, what the potential outcome is going to be on that shoot down table is almost more nerve wracking than the game itself. And, you know, we, we know it's coming because there'll be a shoot down and we'll make a little note and like, oh man, you know, even while the game's still, still going on, we're saying to each other across the table, things like, oh man, I wonder what's going to happen to that guy when we get done. You know, it's, I'm, I'm already nervous about it anyway. Uh, we actually added some other mechanics from some other sources to enhance or add to 
that post game stuff that could go on because what I'm finding is Steve and I are playing about one game a week. So there's plenty of downtime in between missions and we are, you know, updating our squadron list and figuring out what we're going to try to field for the next game and all that. Are there things that you would have us doing things that are on your mind that you think you'd like to see in a rule set perhaps for some of the extra post game events or whatever you might call them? Um, it's interesting. It sounds like you're doing some of it already. W- one of the things I tried to replicate, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if I included it in the final rules or not, was uh, you could get this situation where your squadron comes back out of a fight and, you know, two planes don't come back and you don't know what happened to them. You don't know if they were shot down and the guys were killed or they crash landed somewhere and the guys survived. You don't know if they get captured. And you get these stories of squadrons going back and they, they literally... They just never hear from a pilot again. They they just don't know what happened to them. And in other cases, they don't hear from a pilot again. They're listed as missing in action. And then, like, three months later, they show up again, having, you know, made their way out through France and Spain on foot and managed to get back home again against all the possible odds. So I, w- I was keen that there would be something like that, an element of the unknown going on as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, at least the way the rule is written in in the version that's on the ready room, is that you've got about a 50% chance in that first month that things could turn out well. And that really drops dramatically as soon as it's after that first month, because you're either going to be a one, he's confirmed dead, or a six, he sneaks out. <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's really, it, it forces it to evolve of months of waiting and going, I've got this guy on my roster, do I just line him out now? Because is he coming back? He's still missing in action. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that was the idea behind it. Um, there's a um, what's it called? Woodbine Red Leader, I think it is, which is about a P fifty one squadron in uh, Italy, and they had exactly that sort of thing happen. They, you know, they they had guys that just disappeared and they never knew what happened to them, and they had other guys that, against all the odds, show back up again months later because they'd you know been shot down, captured, escaped, and managed to get with the resistance and been stuck with the resistance for a few months, and then eventually they managed to smuggle them out, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that, that element of uncertainty about losing guys, along with, like I say, the, that Pierre Klosterman thing of like, guys having to do crash landings at the airfield, and they might not survive that either, or might get injured from it, or what have you, because it's, it's all nerve-wracking. It doesn't stop at the edge of the battlefield, sort of thing, because... Planes are planes, you know. They they rely on staying up in the air, and if they can't because they've taken damage or what have you, then the the outcome can be devastating. One of the things we did when we started, we we were just managing about twelve airplanes and their pilots uh, for a squadron, but we found that we were flying a mix of pilot uh, planes. Uh, at least in my case, you know, I had one tens and one o nine, so really different roles and. It just seemed clunky to have them all smashed together in that 12-man roster. So we made, um, or at least I made on mine, a, a second roster for the squadron of the Zerstroyers. And now I kind of feel like we found a kind of a sweet spot where instead of just managing a single squadron, we're sort of managing a group that has maybe a subordinated attack uh, stuck in there. And uh, that's been pretty fun. That, that sounds like an entirely sensible way of handling it, I think, because, you know, in Blood Red Skies, really a squadron is um, a group that all flies the same plane, is, is one of the defining points of it. 
you know, with a few odd exceptions here and there, that's how it was in the war. So if, you, if you're flying different sorts of planes, there's, there's no harm in flying multiple squadrons. Because while we were talking about guys getting shot down or lost and things like that, there are benefits to running a campaign with a squadron as well. The guys can go up as well as down. So, um, you know, in, in some ways, you're, you're kind of spreading your goodness thinner by having multiple squadrons too. Well, that's one of the interesting things I've seen in, in a couple other systems, and you know, I'll use the original Hornet leader as an example, that there's a continuation of the squadron past to the current campaign. And it's an interesting mechanic they have in there, and I think that some, some people expanded upon it on Board Game Geek uh, online and kind of put out some, some further campaign mechanics. But there was a point to growing your pilots and it was even though you finished this current solitaire campaign and, okay, only a couple people went up, the point was if you generated your next campaign, there was a good odds that people were going to leave the squadron and get transferred. And, and if you hadn't trained your second-in-command to have high leadership skill, high aggressiveness, whatever, you know, in, in that game system, all of a sudden, you know, you could roll and the CO would now get orders to go be a staff guy. And all of a sudden, your second-in-command isn't, you haven't, you know, invested the the flying in him to make him good, uh, and so it was really interesting to to watch people use that system to walk an F eighteen squadron through three or four different campaigns, and you know, all of a sudden have guys that had that were their their star players get pulled out, not because they were killed in action, because it was their time to leave the squadron and go do something else really important for the war effort. Well, <laughs> all of a sudden, it. you found yourself in like the, the fourth scenario or fourth campaign with a bunch of rookies, you know, because you hadn't flown them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And your, your elite squadron leader has now been kicked upstairs to go and yeah, exactly. the wing or what have you, because he's too important to be flying a plane anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We exactly. just incorporated a mechanic like that where... Um, there's the potential for guys to get transferred out for even if it's just on a temporary basis, maybe to do a stand at headquarters or maybe, you know, you randomize your pilots and one guy gets potentially pulled out to, um, you know, do weather escort outside of the you know normal squadron duties. So, it, you know, that none of those things have happened yet because, again, it's like a D6 or D10, depending on what chart we're rolling on to figure out what one of those things happening. But sometimes it's some unexpected thing like that. So it's kind of exciting. Like we're already excited about things like that happening uh in our last game at the end of our last game we rolled for some some of our post-combat events and steve is going to have two pilots from the staff the wing staff fly in his next mission so he basically gets like two extra airplanes that aren't part of his roster that uh for free to for that game so are they flown by morons people who push paper rather than fly oh uh, yeah i don't know <laughs> I, no I, I i was kind of chuckling because i last night i uh turned on uh, amazon prime to watch a couple films and of course i was cheesy and watched final countdown so i had my uh my 80s cheese ball movie of the uh of the evening but then i started watching strategic air command and it was funny to see that very dynamic the hey we've got a guy who's just converting into the airplane and he's a staff officer but, oh, by the way, we're going to try to make him a aircraft commander immediately because of his experience and, and being a reserve guy and everything. Um, and so I think there's a lot of different dynamics that you can you can build in with your own series of house rules or, as you guys have done, um, blatantly stealing from other campaign systems like, uh, uh, I believe, Squadron Forward by Two Fat Lardies, uh, stealing some of their tables and some of their ideas. So there's that's the fun thing about wargaming. You can always always mix and match things together. Yeah, we have uh, we have stolen some stuff from them for sure because it translates so well into Blood Red Skies. And really all it's been is an addition. I think, like I mentioned before, that 
the centerpiece of the, you know, besides the, the missions right out of airstrike and everything, the, that calendar that Andy made and the, uh, shoot down bailout injury table, those are integral to every game. And then everything else we've just kind of recently piled on top of that. So we've added a landing check table, uh, I think, uh, that we use for anytime somebody has a force landing, we go to that table because it has a little bit more richness and, you know, depth for what potentially happens, you know, any, anything ranging from perfect landing, everybody's fine, airplane's fine, to some level of injury and damage all the way up to totally destroyed in KIA. Uh, and then uh, we've added some other events, like I mentioned before, that have impacts on getting replacement aircraft and replacement pilots and maybe weird things happening. Some of them are even in-game events. Oh, we also um, used the, uh, the theater weather cards, we, so it used to be when we would start a game, when we get to the part of placing clouds, we would just do a D6 to determine how many clouds, and then we split that equally. If, there's a, if there was an odd number, we would just do a roll-off to see who gets the, the higher number of clouds, and then we just take turns placing our clouds. No big deal. Uh, now we do that as well as uh, roll on a weather event chart, which um, could uh, determine some kind of weather thing, and they translate the weather events translate to one of the existing um, theater weather cards and that has impact because that can completely change the cloud mechanic you know if you get maybe downdrafts i think is one of them if if right. we roll for <laughs> yeah. that then now all of a sudden you want to stay the hell away from clouds you know uh, like all that. of a sudden uh, brett's plan to hide in the clouds and come out and gun me doesn't uh, doesn't play so well anymore <laughs> yeah it's been so fun just little things like that i mean they sound little but you start throwing extra little extra little conditions like that that are sort of randomized and it, it ex we're, we're, you know, we've played a few games and we're already experiencing every game, like something we'd never encountered before. So it's teaching us the game better. I think we're learning a lot about the game, but it's also just super fun because now it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. That kind of thing. Well, Andy, what kind of things ended up on the cutting room floor when you were writing this squadron leader version of, uh, of the campaign rules? Uh, well, I, I've mentioned before that I actually have, a. Um... <laughs> Uh, the wing commander rules, as I called them in the end, which originally when I first started out to write a campaign system, I came up with this fairly insane, um, I'll be honest, yeah, it was fairly insane, insanely complicated. I, I, I find that so hard to believe from, <laughs> from the man who ruined my life with a game called Epic, you know, so <laughs> something was, uh, was large in scale and uh, yeah, okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, so in the wing commander rules, you, you kind of, you, you, you command multiple squadrons and Basically, you, you kind of commit a number of aircraft, and there's a, a crazy matrix which then tells you what kind of uh, an encounter you're going to have, which tells you which scenario to play, is the short version of it. Um, which, when I first showed it to my friend Ryan Miller, he was like, I don't understand this at all, oh my god. And I was like, mm, maybe I went a bit overboard with all this. And I kind of cut <laughs> it down to, like, you command a squadron. Uh, and that's where the squadron commander rules actually came from. And yeah, the wing commander rules, uh, I haven't really looked at them since, I must confess, but uh, I should brush them off at some point and uh, expose them to the light of day and see if people can wrap their heads around them. Well, Ooh. you know, I, I think that'd I'd be like to wrap my head around that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> Brett being the sucker for anything campaign now. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really, really interesting. And the, the funniest part of looking at, at some of the larger... Uh, campaign structures, for lack of a better term, and I'll use Phantom Leader from DVG Games as a as an example, is that how aircraft ended up in the mission they were on really varied. 
by theater and by war. I mean, obviously in Vietnam, you didn't pick your targets. All of a sudden you got handed this target from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Or whereas Korea, you know, there was a little bit more of a, as we would call it these days, a targeting board. All the all the bomber guys at the at the Air Force would get together and go, hey, here's what we're going to hit. Hey, Navy, do you want any of the easy targets for your fighter bombers? <laughs> you know, and, and there was there was an ability to go, yeah, we're going to go after bridges today. Um, and, you know, all the way back to then World War II, where there's a lot of, in a sense, armed reconnaissance missions in some of these theaters, where it was the pilot sitting down with their intel officers, looking at the map and going, hey, I think there's a troop concentration here, or I think they might be putting a train through the mountain pass here. Let's just go put up, you know, a, a series of P-47s, see what we can find and strafe it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of where it came from, both the Battle of Britain, where you've got kind of the Luftwaffe commanders who were just committing certain numbers of fighters to escort bombers, certain numbers of fighters just to run around the place and maybe attack airfields and stuff like that. And then the the flip side of that with the, the RAF doing much the same thing in France, where they're, they're basically trying to draw the opposing air force out and say, hey, we're going to come and bomb something. You know, you want to come and right. accept these bombers <laughs> or not? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, um, and that kind of interplay you got of like how many aircraft people wanted to commit at different times, how many they could commit at different times, uh, producing some very kind of asymmetric scenarios, which again can translate into things like the bounce scenario and stuff like that, which you know you normally wouldn't play that scenario unless you know the campaign tells you you have to because it, it's a clearly unbalanced scenario, but it's there for a reason. And that reason is, in a campaign setting, that's kind of what happens when you commit 60 or 70 aircraft and they've only committed four. The chances are those four aircraft are going to bounce you because they'll be able to spot your formation from miles away, get into a better position, and then come in on your tails. Um, so it's a way of kind of evening those odds, even though they're, they're outnumbered in the sky, that they can manage to get into a much more favorable position before attacking. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting discussion because that is straight out of Ace Factor and a couple of the other books discussing how could such a, pardon me while I in, insult your countrymen, mediocre Air Force <laughs> do so well against the pride of the Luftwaffe? Well, because they could pick and choose. And when you're, there's five of you and there's 50 of them, they are more concerned about hitting each other than, you know, necessarily flying their best airplane against you. And it's, uh, that's a, that having that mechanic in there makes it a fascinating way to compensate the RAF uh, for flying, you know, especially in the beginning, poor hurricanes up there um, and, and really having to have some kind of starting advantage to make it make sense. Cause if there wasn't, if it was nose to nose with a, a whole passel of one Oh nines, they're not going to, they're not going to stick it. around for that fight. When you, when you look at the numbers involved at times, it just makes no sense at all. You know, you've got four guys or eight guys or 12 guys going up against 30 or 50. Yeah, and it's like, exactly. well, how, how can that even work? And again, it's like you say, we're not talking ancient battles here. There, there are yeah. three-dimensional <laughs> environment. There are many factors at play. And the fact is, if you're one of those 30 to 50 guys and you see an aircraft, you don't automatically think it's the enemy. You right. think, oh, it's probably some of our guys, isn't it? Well, I'll kind of keep an eye on them. Oh, crap, here they come. <laughs> and there's actually, there's a very good bit in Adolf Gallen's uh, memoirs where he talks about this when the, you know, the RAF are coming over doing what they very English term for this, they do call their rhubarb missions and things like that, where they are escorting like four or six bombers with about 70 Spitfires, you know, three squadrons up there and all this sort of stuff. Right. And Galland has still managed to get in there and intercept them because it was him and three other guys, and they just mooch along and they wouldn't fly aggressively or anything like that, you know, they'd just fly into the middle of the information and everybody would see them coming and go like, all right, you know, they're, they're not charging around, they're, they're clearly not enemy planes. 
<laughs> until the moment that they attacked them. And then once right. they made their attack, they dived off into the middle of nowhere, and that was that sort of thing. So you can make it work if you go in there sort of like knowing what, what you're up against. Uh, you, you can make their numbers actually work against them. Oh, yeah. Well, that's almost why, in some ways, Brett's laughed at me. I We had written a, a bunch of fairly what I considered balanced force lists for Malta to make it fun scenarios that, that it didn't feel like you were fielding the RAF defenders against the, the hordes of the uh, Italians and the Luftwaffe. But the problem is you read Burling's accounts and it absolutely is them against the hordes. And so you find yourself having to say, okay, do I create a special rule? How do, how do I simulate the fact that the entire Luftwaffe formation just kind of gritted its teeth and wait for the, waited for the RAF to commit and once they were close enough that you know they knew they were actually attacking and not trying to draw the fighters off, then uh, then they were allowed to maneuver, and that that always makes it a little tough on the board because if you start off three four feet away, you kind of assume that the battle's joined, <laughs> so you can't have fifty of the bad guys. Yeah, very very tricky to actually uh, replicate that on the tabletop. It's true. Uh, yeah, it's true. I, I haven't I haven't come up with a good way yet, but I'll try. I'll come up with something good <laughs> one of these days. Well, excellent. Well, so we've talked through a lot of the campaign things, but there's always information we want to pick your brain about since we're those sneaky kind of colonials that we are. Uh, we know that uh, Midway is supposed to be coming out sometime this year. Obviously, coronavirus pushing some schedules around, changing some some things and modifying some things. Is there uh, any good information you have on Midway you want to share with us? Um, we're, we're still looking at it at the moment, but we have got a plastic frame uh, done for measuring sticks and little turning widgets and some of the markers for uh, Blood Red Skies. That's gone ahead. We were just like measuring it up this week and going, ooh, the measuring sticks are, well, the firing stick is a teeny bit short at the moment. It's like, does it matter if it's six inches? It's like, yes, it matters. <laughs> uh, and so on. So Fire the mold maker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I sent you photographs of these things six months ago. It's like, uh-huh. And uh, so uh, we, we're, we're just checking through that at the moment and trying to dot the I's and cross the T's on it. So Good. there is still work going ahead. Um. Midway is still on the schedule. I don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, we do have a, a whole suite of Navy planes to go with it, including, you know, Devastators and all the rest of it. But um, I, I don't... It was originally supposed to be scheduled for sort of July-August time, and obviously I don't think we're going to hit that now uh, with one thing and another. So maybe for Christmas? I don't know. Excellent. Okay. Well, and that's one of those things that we can talk about, especially when we do either the virtual gathering of eagles or get our actual in-person one in, in September. Uh, you know, we, we always would love to uh, get as much information as we can out of you. So <laughs> when you're giving your opening address, uh, anything you have that you can show us, you know, I think that uh, that always helps the, uh, the, as I call them, the faithful, all the Blood Red Skies faithful, wrap their minds around um, that this stuff is actually progressing. It is moving forward. Sometimes it's tough. When you uh, when you hear about it, you see leaks about it, and then you're like, "All right, one of these years we're going to be holding these devastators and other airplanes in our hands." So I, I'm excited about it. Uh, I know we at Lead Pursuit have a few projects we've been working on uh, for gaming mats and some other things to to tie in with Midway. So um, we'll just stand by and see when you guys uh, get closer and closer to release on that. Yeah, I, un unfortunately, the the wheels grind slow. This is always the case. Uh, 
Have I, have I done the... It's 30 years now I've been professionally making games for. It's 30 <laughs> years now I've been professionally making games for. And I can tell you, it's always like either six months or a year away from when you thought it would be for one right. reason or another. It, it just always seems to work out this way. So try and rest assured that, yes, the, the wheels are grinding slowly forward. And uh, we are still up for that midway release. I, I'm excited by it. I think it's going to be a biggie. Because uh, God bless you, Americans. You love your planes so much. So. <laughs> we don't want to play with these RAF aircraft. Why would we want to dirty ourselves with those? Yes. Now I, I know the feeling, which uh, which is good, because I think that I think the Midway box set will definitely help start uh, some some more interest in the U.S. because it's a little bit more relatable uh, to some of the players. But like everything else, I'm happy to push a lot of different airplanes around the table myself. So it. Uh, it it's just interesting to see what people's preferences are out there. Well, what other uh, things are in the hopper, at least in the in the minds of Andy Chambers? What what kind of things have you been ruminating over, thinking about, and, and kind of pushing uh, Blood Red Skies into? Well, uh, as has been discussed before, we, we do have the prospect of doing some Vietnam-era jets, uh, which oh, I know you, yeah, you gentlemen uh... have been kindly working <laughs> on some rules for me. So I, I hate you again, Andy. Duly <laughs> rubber stamp them in, uh, and go like. Please don't tear them apart, light them on fire, and burn them. That's the point I'm at. <laughs> the the truism, and I'll give you this from my 30 years of professional war games uh, making experience, is. Hey, have you been doing this for 30 years? I've been doing this for 30 <laughs> years now. You know. 30 like, years. Yeah, All right, sorry. Yeah, yeah, 30 whole years. That's more the time than some of my players have been alive for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Which is a really terrifying thought. Um, any set of rules, any set of rules, will be genuinely enhanced by taking about 30 to 60% of them out. Yes. So be ready for that, because I will definitely approach them on the like, hmm, what third to two-thirds of these rules can I cut out? Because I know it'll just make it better. Yeah, yep. I, and I can understand that. It was, it was funny as uh, Roger and I talked through. We did some play testing last night, and uh, he was giving me his perspective on things, and he turned around and goes, well, Doug, what do you think? And I said, well... I am surprisingly not disappointed. <laughs> and of course, he and Roz and everybody kind of laughed at that. Um, but it, it really speaks to kind of where we've been that, that you gave us some very specific left and right lateral limits. We went all over the page and came up with all these crazy different ideas. And at the end of the day, scaled back even inside the left and right lateral limits you gave us because you said, here's, here's what we feel comfortable with. Here's what we, here's what we think we can make as a, as a reasonable, believable, fun product. Um, so it, it is a compromise. And, and I know you're going to take a red pen to whatever we write, which is fine. I'm perfectly good with that. But it will be funny to see the things that, that don't pass Andy's muster. And I go, ooh, I really was emotionally tied to that rule. But I'll just get over it and then push my large fandoms around the table. You, you may be pleasantly surprised, never know. You might have done a bang-up job overall. You have been working <laughs> I with, highly doubt uh, that. <laughs> with Roger. And it, it, anyway, he's had his rup, knuckles wrapped with the ruler a few times himself, so he, he kind of knows the deal. Well, and just so you know, and, and also so the uh, the listeners know, it's hilarious to hear the conversation because anytime any good idea comes up, it's always like, what is Andy going to think of that? Is Andy going to like that? Does that does that pass the, the stone tablets from Andy of what we've been told we can and can't do? <laughs> and so every once in a while, we all sit around and we go, we're going to put it in front of him and maybe he won't notice. Maybe it'll be late in the in the rules review and he will skip that and then leave that one in there. So we'll see. I, I, I'm looking forward to it, to be honest. I am looking forward to um, 
you know, going beyond just the initial rule set that we have, but that's going to require a lot of time and please no pressure on us to, uh, to deliver that. Um, but, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see where it grows. And, and quite frankly, I'm probably shifting a bunch of my stuff, my focus back to 1950s and Mig Alley and some of those things that I didn't get enough time playing. Yeah, that was something which, uh, which, which swung by my nose, uh, a little while ago with the shooting stars and Panthers. Uh, I know they look good. I assume look fancy. They 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 look really cool. Actually, <laughs> it kind of ignited my interest in maybe doing fifties jets in a way that I have to confess that the Migs and the Sabers hadn't, because they're they're very they're very fifties sci-fi looking really on a, on a fundamental oh, level. Right. Those straight wing jets, they just look cool. So well, like, that's Ooh. the funny thing to me is I I don't always think about how sci-fi some things in the fifties were and how how atom punk they were until I was watching Strategic Air Command last night. And I'm looking at, you know, shooting stars. I'm looking at, at B-36s, Roger's favorite airplane. And, you know, looking at these guys in their spaceman suits, practically, <laughs> that they're they're walking around inside the aircraft in. And it's just, it's funny to, to go, that was really very sci-fi styled. And then all of a sudden we went into very sleek canopies, very, very different kind of aircraft than this almost atom punk style uh, spaceship uh, aircraft we had in the, in the early 50s. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, when, when you look at them? Because actually, we, we keep saying sci-fi and things like that. That's because the side, the early sci-fi that we're, we're mostly a witness to, was greatly informed by that period of aerospace development. Uh, you know, they they were attempting to ape the real world as much as possible. Oh yeah. And now we sort of like go, oh, that means they all look like Tie Fighters and you know X Wings yeah. and things like that. It's like <laughs> there's nope, a reason for that. Well, it's interesting. So one of my favorite artists was Kelly Freeze, and and a lot of his pulp science fiction, what we would now kind of call Adam Punk style work, but of course it wasn't Adam Punk because it was actually that style at the time, like you're alluding to. And it it was fascinating to me to to see all that styling and to go back and look at it years later now and go, okay, I can I can see why in the fifties and sixties that made sense, and then all of a sudden you end up with aircraft like the F four Phantom, that is just a block of lead with very small windows and very big engines. Yeah, this is a, it, it changes again once you start getting into the, the sort of like the NAM era jets. And yeah, the Phantom's going to be an interesting one because like you mentioned earlier on, it is huge. Uh, if there's one <laughs> yes, thing that Blood Red Skies has really brought home to me is the difference in sizes between aircraft because, you know, you look at single engine fighters and you go like, ah, they must be all about the same size. You know, your brain just automatically assumes that. It's not true at all. Yeah, it has been fascinating to, to build up forces across several different times and then, then go obviously forward into Vietnam with some of the resin models that I've picked up and suddenly say, ooh, that's bigger than a mosquito. <laughs> that's going to be interesting to put that on the table. So we'll see. We'll see how that all works yeah, out. Yeah, the, the Phantoms are about as big as like twin-engine bombers and stuff like that, as you yeah, say. So yeah, it's they like, are, which is, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, what have you been doing besides uh, Blood Red Skies? Is there any other projects you've been pitching in on that you want to talk about or things you want to uh, leak to the gaming world? Um, I've been working on another of the 2000 AD series of games for Warlord uh, Slain, which is the fantasy barbarian game, which um, has it originally started off like last year and uh, right. got in the end put behind doing Judge Dread. Even though you know they swore to us that they were going to do Slain and then just Dread, but it actually ended up being the other way around in the end. 
another one of those glorious things that happens in publishing. <laughs> exactly. um, so we, we've kind of just come back around to that. It's me and Gav Thorpe again working on that. We, we did Strontium Dog together, of course. So that's been a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's given us a bit of breathing space from what our initial take was on it um, to learn from that and, of course, completely rewrote what we wrote before. So that's been fun. And I'm hoping that we can finally get that put to bed soon. The other things, ooh, what else have we been working on? I've got a contract for a board game, actually, interestingly enough. Which frightening, a board on. game. Say it isn't so. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, board games, they're just like tabletop miniature games, but they're easier because you get to work on a grid. So well, Exactly. <laughs> don't tell board well, game yeah. designers I said that, they'll be horrified. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of a skirmish game on a grid, which has been interesting, fun times. So I'm using cards for that one. So I hope to be able to talk about that a little bit more in the future. Um, well, are you, are you finding that card mechanics are something here to stay just kind of because of how uh, so many people are, are playing family-style board games that are a lot of them are, are fairly card-intensive and obviously all the collectible card games that everyone's playing are obviously card-intensive? Yeah, from, from a design perspective, there's, there's some serious benefits you get to using cards and... One of them is that you get to include the rules on the card. Um, that's something I use for Blood Red Skies quite a lot. And for the longest time, Blood Red Skies didn't use cards at all. And because of the success of X-Wing, there was, when it did come to time to publish it, it's like, well, you have to include cards in it, of course, because X-Wing has cards and X-Wing is wildly successful. And it must be because of the cards, right? Nothing to do with it being Star Wars or something like that. And I was like, all right. But what it actually offered me was a solution to many problems that I hadn't really been able to come up with a very satisfying way of dealing with them. Things like the theatre cards that we touched on earlier, weather and stuff like that. Because otherwise that would have just been charts and tables that you know, like 50 to 80% of your players just wouldn't bother with in most games. So by building those into the card mechanics, and particularly the doctrine system, uh, it gave me an out for things that wouldn't have worked just by having miniatures with special rules attached to them, which is basically how right. the trades used to work. So that's been an interesting one, and it's, it's kind of livened me up an awful lot more to using cards. We've used them in the 2000 AD games quite a lot as well, uh, somewhat informed by Blood Red Skies, and that we have kind of, like Strontium Dog has chicanery cards, for example, where, you know, so you can have people playing dead and stuff like that. Um because they can be very, very narrative. So the board game I mentioned, though, actually goes a, a very different route on using cards altogether, and where it's it's used... There aren't any dice in the game. Uh, we use cards for them instead. And it's... I don't know how to describe it, really, without seeing so up my own arse. It's scary. <laughs> um, no worries. <laughs> it's based on a Japanese card game called Koi Koi. There we go. We'll say that much. Uh, which means come on, which is it's kind of a set matching game. And I've used that as a combat mechanic in this particular game for like what actions you take. You know, do you block or dodge or make an attack? Uh, and that's done by matching up cards. Uh, where you have a load of face-up cards on the table, you have a, some cards in your hand, and if you can make matches, then you get to make the attacks as appropriate. So th there's yeah, a whole little sub-mechanic going on there, which is very different from what I mentioned before about the rules being on the cards, because... Right. What the cards in this case are actually doing is that they're replacing the randomizing element that you get by using dice. Right. Uh, 
but it That's does cool. mean that it's a lot more sort of like a, a lot more of a tactical game, and it's also a lot more about seeing what your opponent's picking up and going like, oh, he, he picked up the block card, did he? Hmm, interesting. <laughs> so you know, well, therefore I should use my quick attack so I can get him before he can do the block, and and so on and so on. So yeah, that that'll be a, a bit of a new exploration for me. Uh, well. It's funny, we've talked to a couple different uh, game designers and, and game publishers out there, um, and something that I guess we've never asked them, although it sounds like uh, you've gone down this road, is is one of the funnest parts of being a game designer, buying other games so, <laughs> so you can learn how the mechanics work, because it sounds like there's an element of that that you go, that sounds like that's really fun, I'm going to go buy that game and play it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's in many ways it's very incestuous. You know, there's a lot of self-referential. It's stuff. research. It's research. Yeah, it's also an excuse <laughs> to buy games and play them. Yeah, exactly. It's great fun in and of itself. But yeah, there's often a lot to be learned from how somebody else has tackled a particular subject or used a different mechanic in interesting ways that you can get by looking at other games. So yeah, it's it's always a good one to be. Uh, aware of where things are going and it also gives you stuff about the dynamics you, you mentioned how a lot of board games use cards now a lot of family games use them and so on and of course we've had you know at this point decades worth of magic the gathering so compared to when i started out where you know cards meant playing cards literal you know hearts diamonds that kind of stuff the whole aspect of using cards in games has really, really changed and, and really developed. And there are a lot of people who are very comfortable with card-based games and mechanics. And I mentioned Ryan before, my friend. One of the reasons I really like working with him is because he came from a uh, card game design background. He used to work on Magic the Gathering and stuff like that. So I always feel like there's stuff to be learned from him about that because that's not where I started out. You know, obviously I know a lot about making tabletop miniatures games. He knows a lot about making card games. So when the two of us get together, you, you get some interesting sparky results tend to come out of it, which uh, I think are fresh for both of us, which is a really great thing. I don't know. You you used to have cards. I, I laugh because I was digging through my uh, my closet of shame here, reorganizing things, bringing them out, and ran across my uh, box for Titan Legions. And of course, so it has all of the different uh, unit cards in there and things like that. And so I had my moment of nostalgia because all my epic scale stuff is still put away and is not is not out of the the closet of doom. But going just through the individual unit cards, remembering how how interesting and how fun it was to build an army with unit cards. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Like um, it's true. I mean, some of my earliest work I did at Games Workshop, one of the first things I did as a major job there that wasn't a White Dwarf article was doing Warhammer Battle Magic, which was right. when they switched over the, the magic system to working on cards, uh, and also the magic items, which is where, where I got to do the sort of like very much the apprentice job of like going through all the cards and like putting in all the horrendous overpowered cards that you could then get in that system <laughs> and so you kind of got two things going on there. there there was one where there was the magic cards for the winds of magic and, and that actually was a, a again a dice roll replacement system and there was the other side of it being the rules on cards where the magic items you know it was a, a block of rules basically for a very specific piece of gear where you could put them in a book, certainly, and you could be there leafing through the phone directory that would be produced there by looking for the Obsidian Amulet or what have you. 
But actually, it was more convenient for players to actually put these on little separate cards of their own, so you could just take the ones that were relevant for your force and have them to one side as a, an aid memoir. So there, there were two things going on there, but I don't know. I see both of those as being a little bit different from the Magic the Gathering style thing, where about it's more about the interaction of cards. I mean, Absolutely. there was an element of that in the Winds of Magic and, and the latest sort of psychic system that we did for Warhammer 40,000 that worked the same way. But it wasn't quite the same thing. There, there's, there's definitely something that developed that was smarter than that, where you know the card play and deck building and so forth was very much the game itself rather than a, an adjunct to a tabletop miniatures game, which is the where I kind of learned my uh, learned my chops on it in the first place. Yeah, because we've talked about it in the competitive Blood Red Skies scene, the the amount of effort devoted to building your theater and and doctrine deck uh even though generally it's a fairly small number of cards but the the how do you compensate and what equipment types do you take to to compensate with that and ways to kind of remove some of the uh the outliers and and make things uh table reliant rather than um is your opponent going to grab one of the the cards that you just can't compensate for uh without giving up all your flexibility so i think there's there's some interesting things that i know we in the the u.s competitive side want to try uh, I know Brett couldn't care less about competitive right now. <laughs> He's happy to play his campaigns. Maybe we'll let him play uh, a campaign over uh, over one of the days of uh, uh, of Gathering of Eagles. So knock out three or four games at one time there. Yeah, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, when I've been writing the Blood Red Skies Theatre and Doctrine cards in particular, I have paid very little attention towards their balance. That's not what they're about, as far as I'm concerned. If you want true balance uh, on a kind of... Uh, tournament competitive circuit then you do need to self-censor a little bit because there are <laughs> ones in there you know like the numbers card and the home advantage right. card which are dynamics that i w wanted to put into the game which are kind of in a tournament environment blatantly unfair right right because the well it was funny because because <laughs> even roger played uh, restricted airfields against me the other day taking me from Four big 17s to three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're like, ooh, that, that hurt. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very much there from me looking at it from a, from a historical basis more than anything else and going like, well, what are factors that can come into play? Yep. Uh, and stuff yep. like restricted airfields are like, you know, it's all well and good that you've got, you know, five times as many fighter aircraft as they've got. But if you've only got a handful of airfields up near the front lines where you can uh, stage them forward, then actually you've got about the same number as they've got. <laughs> uh, and it's particularly on the eastern front Absolutely. you get this dynamic where the advancing force can't maintain its air superiority because the retreating force is actually going back to properly established air bases with you know all right. weather strips and stuff like that whereas the other guys are having to go off uh, you know mown grass basically for their airfields <laughs> and it limits their their effectiveness and you got this after d-day as well to a certain extent i mean you had the england working as the unsinkable aircraft carrier to help out but it, it was very much a factor for the more short-ranged aircraft of just how many you could get bring to bear was limited by how many how much airfield space you physically had near the front lines right right yeah, it's funny for us. We we tried to break Rolling Thunder down into three different phases and and provide at least some variety to the theater and doctrine cards out of the the Blood Red Skies mix that could be played in there. Uh, just hoping to to give people a little different flavor, whether they were playing, you know, 
early phase, mid phase, late phase, you know, doing Operation Bolo where it's weapons free and you can shoot anybody you want because <laughs> it's only fighters over the target area, uh, things like that. And so that was that was a fun series of combinations. I think Roger and I still have a lot of work before we before we think that our recommendations for <laughs> for cards are even close. But uh, but it's been fun to analyze the tactics and the and the history. Yeah, don't sweat it too much because, like I say, I, I tend to see Blood Red Skies as supplying a toolkit. I, I talked about this for Airstrike before now of like. It's supplying, hopefully, everything you need and more. And to a certain extent, it's down to the players to do their research and go, well, this actually fits really well in the context of that campaign. And, oh, yeah, I read about that and so on. Uh, it's interesting, the the Fat Lardis stuff keeps coming up because they, they've evidently done a lot of this le- legwork already and worked out their campaigns and worked out squadrons and all the rest of it. So uh, I think they're, they're sounding like a really good resource. People keep mentioning their books. Uh, as being a yeah. good source for this kind of thing. So, Brett's dug through it. I haven't ever had a chance to really dig in detail uh, through their campaign system, but uh, everything everything everyone said has been it's, it's pretty detailed and pretty fascinating. Yeah, so a, well, awesome. a great resource to to get a hold of, I suspect. And uh, you know, yeah. hopefully one <laughs> See day, another one you have to buy. Yeah, hopefully one day we'll we'll have you know got ourselves enough elbow room that we can do the same sort of thing for Blood Red Skies. But once again, with historical gaming, you know, it, it's it's not quite so Catholic as it tends to be when you do science fiction or fantasy and that you can go to a, a broader base of knowledge and uh, find more detail about what you want to do out there and gain inspiration from different places. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a wonderful topic for another time uh, in the, uh, <laughs> I will say, the Catholicism of fluff and gaming in the sci-fi world uh, and how people don't want to expand the boundaries. <laughs> but anyway, we'll have to talk about that some other time when we delve back into your previous ancient history in the first of the 30 years that you've been a game designer, uh, working on 40K, Titan Legions, uh, all of those uh, those cool games that I grew up playing. So, But thanks for being on tonight, Andy. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for talking through campaigns and a lot of the upcoming information for Blood Red Skies. And I know our listeners are going to be excited about that. Uh, we're looking forward to hopefully getting some games in in person. I know some places are opening up. So uh, if people have battle reports or more photos, please send them in. As always, uh, I'll remind everyone that uh, sign-up is live for both the virtual uh, uh, Gathering of Eagles. I had a moment of senior <laughs> senior moment there. Uh, the virtual Gathering of Eagles sign-up is online, and uh, we also have the dates and everything for our Labor Day weekend this fall hopefully, knock on wood, besides my woodhead, uh, the uh, in-person gathering of eagles so we can get together, uh, have a number of people playing Blood Red Skies actually across a table instead of across a virtual table. So, Thank you very much, Andy. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on again, guys. And uh, take to the skies, good wings. And all that stuff.